calling all ninjas, calling all ninjas. It's time for Lime Ninja Radio. Today on Lime Ninja Radio. Because the paradigm that most doctors work upon is that there's one cause for one disease. Yes. And in what I've discovered, uh, and it's laid out in all the chapters in my book in detail, is that it's not just Lyme, it's also co-infection and it's inflammation. And that inflammation can happen not just from Lyme, but associated co-infections. This podcast is sponsored by the Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker. I'm so excited to tell you about our new Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker. One of the things I hear over and over again, whether it's talking to a patient in my office or consulting over the phone with a client, is just how difficult it is to keep track of progress on their Lyme journey. Recording symptoms daily or even weekly gives them too many data points. There are so many ups and downs, twists and turns that at some point they get lost and confused. The Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker takes all the guesswork out of tracking symptoms with a simple monthly questionnaire. Once a month is the perfect interval to see if that new supplement or protocol is working. Right now, when you take the Symptom Tracker questionnaire, we give you a simple composite score for the month. But we have big plans and the data you enter will not be lost as we roll out new features. Best of all, it's free. Just head on over to LimeNinjaRadio.com slash tracker and sign up. That's LimeNinjaRadio.com slash tracker. You'll be glad you did. Join us every Thursday on iTunes for the latest episode of Lime Ninja Radio. Hello, I am the show producer and today your host, Aurora. And this is episode number 176, The Best of Lime Ninja Radio with Dr. Richard Horowitz. McKay is on vacation. He's left for Florida with the women's lacrosse team that he helps coach. And he sent me a picture of the beach this morning as I waded through a foot of snow and counting. But, you know, we won't hold that against him. We will be back next week with a regular episode. In the meantime, as you all know, Lyme disease is an international problem. Each week we have listeners join us from all over the world, from Berlin, Germany, to Belgrade, Serbia, and from Reading, England, to Deception Bay, Australia. A big thank you to all you longtime Lyme ninjas. We really appreciate you listening, and we'd like to welcome all the new listeners out there. Welcome to Lime Ninja Radio. We're glad you tuned in. This week, our top 10 tune-in cities are starting at number 10, Olive Branch, Mississippi, number 9, St. Paul, Minnesota, number 8, Raleigh, North Carolina, number 7, Minneapolis, Minnesota, number 6, Parkton, Maryland, number 5, Jacksonville, Florida, number 4, Boston, Massachusetts, number 3, Springfield, Massachusetts, Number two, Seattle, Washington. And coming in at number one is Dallas, Texas. Also, if you love what we're doing, make sure to head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. Just a reminder, we are hosting a giveaway of Dr. Rawls' book, Unlocking Lime. You can enter to win at LimeNinjaRadio.com front slash win. Lyme disease is one of the most puzzling illnesses on the planet. 
Anyone who has suffered from its debilitating symptoms knows the frustrations of trying to find a cure. Many sufferers drag themselves from one doctor or alternative practitioner to the next, getting lost in a maze of lab tests, prescription drugs, and treatments. Thousands of dollars in months or years later, they realize they are no better off than where they started. Unlocking Lyme puts an end to this desperate quest. Written by Dr. Bill Rawls, a physician who overcame Lyme disease himself, this book is a comprehensive, practical resource full of solutions that work. So go on over to LimeNinjaRadio.com front slash win to enter the contest to get this book. For more information about Dr. Rawls, you can visit his website at RawlsMD.com. That's R-A-W-L-S-M-D.com. And now a little bit about Dr. Horowitz. Dr. Richard Horowitz is a board-certified internist in a private practice in Hyde Park, New York. He's a director of the Hudson Valley Healing Arts Center, an integrative medical center which combines both classical and complementary approaches in the treatment of Lyme disease and other tick-borne disorders. He has treated over 12,000 chronic Lyme disease patients in the last 28 years, with patients coming from the U.S., Canada, Europe, Australia, and New Zealand. Dr. Horowitz has presented at numerous scientific conferences and has published on the role of co-infections and toxins in Lyme borreliosis. He was awarded the Humanitarian of the Year Award by the Turn the Corner Foundation for his treatment of Lyme disease and has dedicated his life to help those stricken with this devastating illness. And without further ado, I present to you our interview with Dr. Richard Horowitz. So first of all, thank you very much. I know you're a very, very busy man. Oh, you have no idea. And and it's summer. <laughs> Finally in upstate. Yes. Yes. Well, where are you located? I'm around the corner. I'm uh, out by Hamilton College. Hamilton College. Which is about an hour east of Syracuse, sort of southwest of Utica by a couple stone throws. Okay. Yep. Yep. West Albany. Okay. Very great. Well, you know, I saw Chris Green's number come up. Are you in a relationship with Chris? No. That was so strange. When the number showed up on my cell phone, it said Chris Green. Huh. Well, I am. I'm calling for my Skype account, so I don't know how it cycles through different numbers calling out. So maybe there's some huh. crossover there somehow. Okay. Ghost in the machine. Not a problem at all. So I have this on slight speaker. Do you want me to take it off speaker? Or can you hear me okay? Um, it's okay. This is without speaker, which is better. Oh, without speaker by far. Okay, let's do without speaker then. So you've been doing this for 26, 27 years? That's correct. How, how did you get started? Because back then... Nobody even knew what Lyme was. Well, I mean, in my particular case, I had moved into the Hudson Valley, New York, yep. which was one of the most Lyme endemic areas of the United States. So I didn't realize that 
when I had moved from Bayside, Queens, where I had grown up, uh, Vassar Hospital had invited me up to open up a medical practice, uh-huh. and um, I moved into Hyde Park, New York, and there it was, Dutchess County, uh, extremely high levels of tick bites and tick-borne diseases, and it was just starting to take off, uh, but nobody was really talking about it. And then when did it dawn on you that, oh my God, this is what's going on? It was several years into my medical practice when I started seeing patients with uh, EM rashes. So they started coming in with a classical bullseye rash, Mm -hmm. and a fairly large number of them would get better with early treatment. But there were those that were treated, and you know, 20 to 25% would come back with symptoms of fatigue and headaches and joint pain. So the problem that I faced is I had to go looking into finding out why these people were still staying chronically ill. And that's kind of how I got involved in the journey. It was my role as a doctor to make sure that I got my patients better. And these particular patients were just ill. They weren't responding to the classical treatments. So I started going to medical conferences, looking through the medical journals, uh, trying to figure out exactly why these people were remaining ill. And where did you find the thread that led you to Lyme disease? It was one of my patients who came in to my practice who had a Bell's palsy, Mm. and I had known her for quite a few years, and she had had headaches and all kinds of neurological symptoms, and um, none of the neurologists could figure out why she was still sick, and I tested her for Lyme disease, and she ended up being positive, and she had suggested I go to one of the LDF conferences. Uh, The Lyme Disease Foundation was still around at that point, and I had met Dr. Borscano and Dr. Liegner, Dr. Sam Danta. I'd met them at that conference, so I got my first introduction to uh, the other side of the coin, which is the testing is not necessarily highly reliable and that these tick-borne infections can persist. Right. And they had given me other treatment protocols that they had found effective. So I went back to my medical practice and started using them and lo and behold, found that they did help a certain percentage of the people. Okay. So in the beginning, the question is the the climate, the medical climate, because what you describe is just common sense, and it's like the story we'd like to hear from everybody's physician, but that's not most people's experience. So how how have how are things right now? What direction are they moving in? Who was who was the pediatrician, the Lyme pediatrician in Albany, who just kind of dodged the bullet up there? What was her name? Uh, Dr. Karen Bovenzi. That's right, Bovenzi. Yeah, the political climate is definitely much better now, um, but it's taken many, many years to be able to change that climate. Uh, Governor Cuomo just recently signed into law in the past year a a bill which is protecting doctors for treating Lyme disease according to either of the two standards of care. Uh, So that's, I think, helped doctors at this point to feel more comfortable prescribing longer-term antibiotics and also for some of those patients who are seronegative according to uh, the IDSA CDC criteria. And the problem is, is that the CDC criteria have, are known that they're really only supposed to be used by health departments to screen people right. epidemiologically, but unfortunately, they've been adopted by insurance companies, and I think some of the doctors have also been afraid that they may be thrown out of insurance panels if they treat for longer periods of time. So the political climate has improved from the perspective of the medical boards, but from the point of view of insurance companies, okay. I'm, I'm sure that doctors are still, at this point, worried about prescribing for seronegative Lyme and also for treating uh, longer term for these people who are still chronically ill. So it, this isn't a setup question because I really don't know. So how, how does, is it legislation that changes 
the insurance policies, or how, how does that get changed? Well, I'm, you know, I'm not sure. I mean, I think part of it will be changing the IDSA guidelines. Unfortunately, okay. I have sent I have sent the medical references on um, the problems with testing with uh, seronegative Lyme, that the tests are not reliable, that right. it's roughly a coin flip, roughly half of the people will be picked up in a LISA test. And I've sent this to the insurance companies. I've met with them. I did a public congressional forum with Congressman Gibson, Chris Gibson, a few years ago. He was the congressman who introduced the first federal line bill, uh, H.R. 4701, which now is H.R. 789. He's the first one who introduced the federal legislation. And I did a talk um, with insurance companies present several years ago. Blue Cross Blue Shield was there, our local insurance companies, MVP. Mm-hmm. Um, they saw the information. The problem is, is that they have infectious disease doctors on their guidelines panel who are basically just using the IDSA guidelines. Right. And, you know, until they get it or their family members get it, uh, they basically just keep the guidelines where they are saying, hey, the peer review science doesn't show that we should be treating long term. And the problem is, is that I've shown them that these double blind studies that they're relying upon, first of all, there were really only three of them. One of them was divided into two. But of the three, the Krupp study showed that people got better with their fatigue, mm-hmm. and Brian Fallon's study showed that their neurological symptoms did improve. Right. Um, it's just they didn't continue to improve because they stopped the treatment. So <laughs> I, I've, shown them, I've shown them the studies. There's lots of peer-review literature backing it up, but I really haven't been able to make much headway. Um, I'm not sure if my book has been able to uh, influence some of these people. I know that some of the line groups like Lyme Disease United Coalition, Judith Week, has sent my book uh, to every living president. She sent it to all the candidates. Right. We, we got a copy of the book to every congressman and every senator uh, because it's spreading across the United States. So, you know, we've done our best to be able to educate the politicians, but I think it really probably will be the politicians and eventually changing the guidelines by the IDSA. Um, the problem is, is we're not sure at this point that they're really going to follow the IOM guidelines uh, that are being set, you know, forth. And right now they're looking at getting another patient advocate who's had Lyme, but there's no word that they're ever going to have a, a Lyme literate doctor, someone in uh, the field like Dr. Liegner or myself or Dr. Cameron, someone who's been treating Lyme for a very long period of time right. who has alternative views. There's no word that they're going to even have one of us on the panel uh, and I know that they've gotten my book because um, I've given my book. My book is in the hands of several of those members of the IDSA panel. Right. Well, you can lead so, a horse to water. Uh, yes. Un- unfortunately, sometimes the paradigms in medicine do shift slowly. And, but unfortunately, because these tick-borne diseases in this epidemic is spreading quickly, right. um, to say that my, my new guidelines will be available in two years that is just that just doesn't cut the mustard. It's just way too slow. Yeah. At the, at this point in time. Yeah, it is. There's no doubt about that. Um, I interviewed Josh Cutler uh, a few weeks ago, and he he hinted that he had made some progress working with some of the board members, and uh, then he kind of had to drop off the map because he was having a relapse. So I'm I'm hoping to find out uh, what he had up his sleeve in terms of talking with them, but it's so, so and in, in your opinion, I know this probably isn't a fair question. You can dodge it if you want to. So, and there is the, the whole paradigm shift and there's the history is littered with slow paradigm shifts in science and medicine. But is, is this just a case of paradigm shift or 
you know, is, is it hinted by some? Do you think there's some deeper financial conspiracy behind things? Um, I think it's probably a combination of um, things do, you know, go slowly in medicine. I mean, I put this in the beginning of my book. When you look at the history of medicine yeah. with, with like, um, Semmelweis, who discovered that all we had to do is wash our hands right. and less women would die in childbirth, that took many years before that was adopted. The same problem with H. pylori. Yep. Um, when Marshall discovered it, we were still taking stomachs out or telling patients to drink milk for their ulcers. Right. Um, it took many years before that was adopted. At this point, for the paradigm with Lyme, the, the 16-point MSIDS model um, you know, that I've discovered after seeing over 12,000 people, it is a paradigm shift. vast majority of my patients are co-infected with babesiosis and other parasites. Right. Some have Bartonella, some have mycoplasma. And in the studies that I've done, I've seen Lyme, Babesia, Bartonella, and mycoplasma all be chronic persistent infections mm-hmm. despite classical therapies. Mm-hmm. So when you look at the fact that you've got a lot of chronic infections driving inflammation, and inflammation is the number one cause of most chronic disease that we see at this point in medicine. Right. Um, inflammatory molecules called cytokines, like tumor necrosis factor alpha, IL-1, IL-6, these cause fatigue, they cause headaches, they cause joint and muscle pain, memory problems, mood disorders. If you can lower down those inflammatory cytokines, even if you don't get rid of every last Borrelia in the body or every mm-hmm. last co-infection, people will still get better. They'll feel and better. Similarly, and similarly, the Lyme patients don't fall asleep. That will cause elevations in cytokines and inflammation, or 25% of them have zinc deficiency and mineral right. deficiency. Yep. That causes inflammation. Yeah. Or the microbiome of their gut, they have the wrong type of bacteria that cause inflammation. Um, so when you put all of this together between the environmental toxins and the difficulty detoxing mold and heavy metals um, and not getting to sleep and food allergies that cause inflammation. The paradigm shift is that there's multifactorial causes for why these people are ill. And if it's the same inflammation that's causing the symptoms, you can't just do a double-blind study and say, gee, uh, 30 days of antibiotics with the same ones that failed people previously didn't work. I guess this is not a chronic persistent disease. That's not really going deep enough. So I think the paradigm shift is going to have to be for not just Lyme, but for many chronic diseases, a multifactorial model, especially with the number of environmental toxins that we're all being exposed to just in the last year or two. Uh, Harvard and UC California has come out with studies on autism showing the number of chemicals that are now getting into children that are causing cognitive difficulties. Um, Similarly, they're carcinogenic. I think we're going to see the multifactorial model um, be adopted, but like anything in medicine, it's slow. And regarding the financial aspects, I mean, clearly the insurance companies in this country, I don't think they're running to adopt guidelines where uh, these diseases require longer-term treatment. Um, Obviously, they'd like to say that it's just chronic fatigue or fibromyalgia or post-treatment Lyme, and we don't really know why. Um, You have it, but we'd rather pay for Lyrica and Cymbalta and Elevil for your neuropathy um, rather than pay for long-term antibiotics. Um, But I I think if they really look at the finances of what it costs to be misdiagnosed, the number of doctors that patients see, which can be 10 to 20 to 30 before they sometimes come in and see me, all those tests that they do where they can't find why the people are sick and all the drugs that they're put on that treat symptoms but don't get to the cause of the problem, ultimately, it's causing disability. It's going to ruin the economy of our country. 
they're just pushing off their inability to treat this properly onto the taxpayers where we have to pay for the disability for these people. Um, And everyone's worried about the economy and moving forward. But when families are this sick and people can't work, we're going to have a problem. So it's going to flow eventually downhill. And I think we really need just the big view of how do we protect people in this country? How do we protect children, the future generations who are on the lawns, who are getting these tick-borne diseases and develop neuropsychiatric problems? I mean, this is, this is really one of the most serious problems facing America today. And we need, we need to get together. We need a conference table where um, everyone sits together, the people from the insurance companies, the doctors, the scientists, the researchers. We've all got to get together you know, with the political leaders and say, this is the problem before us. You know, we have a great country, but we need to have open minds and we need to think about what's really going to be best for everyone. I think if we don't sit down at a table and we communicate better, uh, looking at the science, talking about what we're seeing, it's going to be a very slow process. And unfortunately, many more millions of people are going to get ill. So what would it take to bring what or who would it take to bring that together? Well, I think part of the solution is what Congressman Gibson was trying to put forward with the new federal Lyme bill. Uh, That's going to bring more money for research for Lyme disease. Some of the groups out there, I think, are doing a great job. I was just at the uh, Lyme Aid from Bay Area Lyme Foundation gave this great uh, concert with Huey Lewis, and I was out there, and they raised a lot of money for Lyme research for Stanford and other places. John Hopkins was there. I think the groups are doing a fabulous job to raise money. The LDA has done a great job. Um, the uh, Turn the Corner, which merged uh, at this point with uh, David Roth's group, they're doing a great job. But the money is it's being looked at, you know, biobanks for looking at Lyme. It's not looking at the big picture, which for me is the 16 points that are keeping people ill. So I, I think really what's going to be needed at this point is to get to a table, to get more research money, to get all the people together and say, let's look at the science. Hopefully the federal bill is going to do that. Right. I, I, I just don't know that people are aware at this point, um, since Lyme is the great imitator, mm-hmm. that there are so many people who probably have underlying memory concentration problems, yeah. some with Alzheimer's. Yeah. Um, you know, we've got an Alzheimer's going, epidemic going on. And no one's able to identify the underlying causes of why we're getting amyloid plaques and this is happening. And they realize it's going to crash the economy of the country. But when you look at the science of Borrelia, we know that Borrelia gets in the brain. Alan McDonald found it in 70% of the people in the NIH databank. And and probably combined with genetics and environmental toxins, which also causes these amyloid plaques, you're dealing with, again, a multifactorial problem. We don't have time with these kind of epidemics from 30 years from now when it's going to be too late. And I don't know why no one is stepping back and looking at the severity of the chronic disease epidemic that's taking place in this country and saying, we really need to put uh, some fire underneath this and get going. I'm, you know, I'm just hoping that federal bill and getting to the table is going to start speeding it up. But Really, we should be looking at this for all chronic diseases, not just Lyme and associated co-infections. Right. So that leads me to my next question. So you really see Lyme as the tip of the spear that's really shining the spotlight or revealing that there are these multifactorial illnesses that so many people are suffering with. And Lyme maybe had the leave in one of them, but it might be something completely different in somebody else. It might be mold. It might be heavy metal toxicity. But they're all similar, Right. Yes, I mean, so that's exactly it. I mean, the problem is, is that no two people are alike. So they're talking now about personalized medicine. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And, and the 16-point MSIDS model is, in fact, personalized medicine because there are no two people that I treat in the thousands of people I've treated who I've treated exactly the same because some of the people um, may have babesiosis um, with Bartonella. Some may have babesiosis with an active mycoplasma species. Mm-hmm. Um, some have high levels of metal. Some don't. Some have mold. Some don't. Some have tremendous sleep problems. Some don't. Everyone is different. But if you don't get to all the causes of the inflammation, um, these people just don't feel well. But I would say that the Lyme and the tick-borne infections is certainly one of the biggest nails in the foot that has to be pulled. Mm-hmm. Um, the parasites, for example, Babesia and the associated parasites, they're definitely one of the, the main reasons why people are not getting better from this disease, including Bartonella and Mycoplasma. Those are the main ones that are causing a lot of the inflammatory response. But I think apart from that, the environmental toxins and the detox issues is probably right afterwards, mm-hmm. um, along with, truthfully, leaky gut and food allergies, yeah. and yeah. Uh, because we're also seeing quite a bit of that in people driving inflammation also. And everyone's looking at these almost as if they're separate problems without realizing <laughs> that the same inflammatory molecules are being produced from multiple sources, right. therefore driving symptomatology. Right. And you can't just do a double-blind study online to say why people aren't getting better if you're not looking at all the causes of the inflammatory cycle. Now, and, and this, forgive my ignorance here because I haven't looked through the literature. So are the people studying inflammation, do they just stop at the inflammatory cytokines or do they track it back to, okay, what's, what are some of the causes? But if they have the prejudice and they're looking for just one of them, then they're just in one of the alleys. Right. So, I, I mean, when I've looked at the literature, it's, it's a little bit of everything. I mean, clearly, inflammation in Lyme has been well studied. Brian Fallon did a great study on uh, inflammatory cytokines in the central nervous system just a couple of years back. Uh, it's been well known. It's similarly, it's known for uh, Alzheimer's disease also. There's studies where they've given drugs that are tumor necrosis factor inhibitors mm-hmm. to lower down one of those cytokines. And when they give it in the spinal cord of people with Alzheimer's, their memory gets better just by blocking some of these inflammatory molecules. So the the studies are out there, not just for Lyme, but for other diseases. Um, But again, it's piecemeal. People are not putting the whole thing together, looking at all the causes of why the inflammation is taking place. And and also, because you've got this inflammation, you've got these free radicals and oxidative stress damaging the body, damaging the mitochondria, throwing the hormones off. Most people don't realize that you've also got to deal with the end effects of, for example, the hormone disruption, that 40% of my patients have low adrenals, and a certain percentage of the men in their 20s have very low testosterone as if they were 80 years old, huh. um, and, and they have mitochondrial dysfunction, maybe yeah. a third of them. Yeah. The mitochondria don't work. If the mitochondria don't work, Nothing the nerve works. cells aren't working, yeah. And, yeah. and the heart may not be working. So they're ignoring the end effects of what the inflammation does in the body, mm-hmm. that it's a question of also having to fix some of the damage that's been done, not just treat the infection. Right. So we're going to need to endow a chair at Hopkins or Duke or somewhere and, and get you on there so you can start teaching young doctors. <laughs> well, the University of Arizona, actually, I was in uh, conversation with Randy Horowitz there. Uh-huh. Uh, we, we, we've not finalized anything, but... Uh, there have been some conversations that um, I might eventually at some point be invited out to do some teaching at the University of Arizona, but nothing's been finalized. Yeah, because that's fabulous, because really that's what you're talking about, a whole new way of approaching medicine, because the the whole silver bullet paradigm, you know, it's it's funny because the silver bullet paradigm came along with um, syphilis, right? 
and being able to stain various things and track that down and eventually figuring out some antibiotics. Yes, right? yes, definitely was one of the earlier ones. And, and in fact, in the medical literature, one of uh, Dr. Zhang from Hopkins recently sent me an article on this. We were, we were discussing some of his recent work um, on, on persisters, on bacterial persisters, and also doing pulse therapies. And he pointed out to me that one of the first articles that had ever been published on rotating these antibiotics was back going back to 1944. Wow. And he sent me the article. I forget if it was in JAMA in New England. I think it was JAMA um, from, uh, from a doctor at that time showing about for staphylococcus or strep, whatever it was, that they were starting to do pulse therapies. So, you know, some of this actually goes back a long time where the medical literature has been around, but we don't know how to use it for some of these different infections. I think if we can get more research money into hands of university researchers, like some of the great ones at Hopkins and Stanford right now, I think they're, they're really leading the way. Um, I, I think we can solve the puzzle because Dr. Zhang is just doing an amazing job at Hopkins with his group um, as far as looking at line persisters and drug combos that get rid of these persisters. It's really some of the most exciting research that's come out in the last 40 years online because you can use it. It's got a good clinical application. A lot of the other stuff that's come out might be interesting, but as a clinician, right. it's not something that's really going to always help your patient. Right. And that's eventually the bottom line. So let's see. So to help people out there or their friends and neighbors. So I've, I find out here in the hinterlands uh, that really how Lyme is diagnosed is over the backyard fence. Um, and somebody runs into somebody who said, you know, you might want to check this out. And he, well, and the answer is, well, I got tested early on for Lyme. And so then that discussion begins and, and it uh, cascades into finally taking some sort of action. So what what do you see as the most currently, because I know things are kind of running cycles and fads. What are the current diagnoses that you see with your Lyme patients that they're coming in with? Um, well, the most common diagnoses, of course, when they haven't been diagnosed, is chronic fatigue syndrome, uh, fibromyalgia, autoimmune diseases like lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, uh, multiple sclerosis is quite common, um, many psychiatric disorders. Uh, it will sometimes mimic schizophrenia. We see quite a bit of OCD, anxiety, depression, uh, bipolar disorder on occasion because uh, Lyme is mimicking all the psychiatric disorders. Yeah. Um, so th those are probably the most major ones that we're seeing. And then we do see a handful of patients with ALS also, where some of those ALS syndromes are directly due, it looks like, to tick-borne diseases because their neurological symptoms get better with antibiotics. Others may have a genetic predisposition or, and or environmental toxins, and the tick-borne infection on top of the, the ALS basically makes the neurological symptoms worse so that they have damage. But those are the, probably the most common manifestations that I see because Lyme is the great imitator. Right. Uh, and then, of course, Bartonella and the co-infections are making all of the symptoms worse, uh, the psychiatric and the neurological symptoms. So those, those are the most common ones. And regarding diagnosis, you know, the, the problem with the test, and I spoke to Ben Beard of the CDC. We met probably about six months ago at a private dinner meeting. You know, he let me know that the C6 Lymolyza peptide um, and his opinion was better than the ELISA, and I agreed with him. I've started to use it, and certainly there are cases where the C6 ELISA is picking up uh, the disease where the ELISA is negative because it's picking up other Borrelia species. Uh, we've, had, we've, had, we've had 15 new Borrelia species yeah. in the last 10 years, yeah. and, and not all these Borrelia species are picked up on the two-tier test 
of using an ELISA followed by a Western blot. Mm-hmm. So, for example, Borrelia miyamotoi, this new relapsing fever from Japan, which is now in 10 to 20 per 6 in the Northeast where we are mm-hmm. and is out in California uh, in the Bay Area, it's, it's spread worldwide. That is not going to be picked up on a standard two-tier test, yet it can cause an EM rash, it can cause a meningitis, it can cause an encephalitis, it can cause Bell's palsy. It sure looks like Lyme, but the test is going to be negative, of course. and people are going to be told they don't have a tick-borne infection. Right. So we've got a problem because we just don't have sensitive tests, and one thing that I do when patients come in to see me is I give them the Horowitz Lyme MSITS questionnaire, which was developed initially from Dr. Borscano's questions, and I weighted the questions, added ones onto it, used some of the CDC Healthy Days questionnaire, and we found that a score of 46 or higher, the way the questionnaire is weighted, mm-hmm. is two standard deviations above the mean, meaning it's a, it's a reliable it's tool as a, as a first screen. Yeah. And it was validated by researchers at the State University of New Paltz. Uh, oh, we're hopefully going to get it published soon, but it, it's a good screening tool for people. So if you're waiting in a, in a waiting room of a doctor, uh, let's say you're a psychiatrist or a psychologist, and your right. patient has depression, anxiety, right. you may not ask them if they have a multisystemic disorder. Um, so the advantage of the questionnaire is if a patient fills it out and you see that they've circled just about everything on the questionnaire, <laughs> right. and, and they say, I've got good days and bad days, and my symptoms are coming and going, yep. and my joint pain, muscle pain, and nerve pain, tingling, numbness, burning is migrating around my body where one day it hurts in one place, and then it hurts someplace else, and I've got memory concentration problems where I walk into a room and I can't remember why, mm-hmm. and I can't fall asleep. When you start looking at those symptoms, you realize, well, that's a classic constellation of symptoms that you see with Lyme disease. Right. And then if they fill out, I have day sweats, night sweats, or chills with fever, that suggests they might have Babesia. So it's an easy questionnaire, and considering there's also 100 different strains of Babesia, there's over 300 strains of Borrelia, we've got over 30 different types of Bartonella, there's multiple strains of Mycoplasma, you're just not going to expect that the present serological tests with antibodies are going to pick these up. It can't keep up. There's just no way. Right. So we, we basically need more sensitive PCR testing or cultures that are going to start doing this, and we're just not there yet. And that's why this research is really so essential that we get the research monies uh, to be able to get better tests so that we know exactly what we're dealing with. Yeah, they need some more type of fuzzy logic and some sort of computer to read it and say, put it all together or something like that. Right. Or just a doctor who's aware. <laughs> uh, so... So up here, you know, I'm not that far away from you. And actually over in Syracuse, there's there's quite a bit of Lyme disease. Uh, there's a state park over there and surrounding that has just been absolutely uh, crushed by Lyme. But you start getting out and we have doctors, you know, across the street, there'll be the vet and he's treating dogs for Lyme disease all day long. And across the street, the doc will say, we don't have Lyme disease in this area. and that's you know that's kind of what the rest of the world is is dealing with how how do we get your screening tool into the hands of doctors and get them to say okay i'm at least willing to look at this there's some science here is that really going back to the guidelines the isda guidelines well i think some of it may be the politics and some may be fear with the insurance companies it it depends honestly on the motivation of the doctor um i mean i i was taught in med school and taught by my teachers that you always try and exchange yourself with others and do for them what you would want done. Mm -hmm. And that there's a certain level of compassion you just have to have for people that are sick. 
Um, if a doctor is finding that his patient's not getting better and living in any area that is obviously highly endemic, they may be in denial about it. But if a patient's coming in with some of those overlapping syndromes of uh, chronic fatigue and fibro and the rest, you've got to start thinking about Lyme. Now, the screening questionnaire would make it easier. I think what would also make it easier is if the health departments, if we had the money mm. to be able to test the ticks in each of these areas to tell you, uh, each physician in that area, what exactly is in the ticks? What are the co-infections? Sometimes the vets have done this. Okay. Uh, they, they've done some very good studies, for example, and shown that in Vermont, 16% of the dogs have Lyme disease. Right. This is from the Vermont Department of Health. So we know that when you have that high an animal population with Lyme in an area, that the number of people infected is also going to be quite high. So um, I think, you know, the vets may be able to help out a little bit. Banfield Pet Hospital, they had done some studies on this showing there was an over 20% increase in Lyme last year based on the dog population. Um, I think, you know, having the health departments get involved and get past the politics would be helpful. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, having a doctor use another laboratory like Igenix that checks for two strains of Lyme, mm -hmm. not one, yep. will, will certainly show bands on a Western blot they may not be picking up uh, from some of the local laboratories that only use one strain. I think, you know, they've got to be educated. I know some of my patients has, have brought my book to physicians yep. um, to, to be able to help them. And um, it, obviously, a doctor needs to look at the CDC and see that the CDC says on their website, this is only really supposed to be used epidemiologically for screening large populations. Right. So the, the problem is, is there's there's kind of double speak with the insurance company saying no, this is the way you're supposed to do it. Okay. But really, when you look at the CDC website and you go back years, you'll see that this was never supposed to be used for screening. And in fact, if you go back to the Dearborn criteria from years ago, mm -hmm. when the Lyme vaccine was coming out, they never put the bands back in um, for the IgM Western blot, the 3134. So. Doctors need to understand the relevance of Borrelia-specific bands. If you go to some of the old articles by Maudall on, you know, the, the relevance of the bands on the Western blot, the 23, which is the outer surface protein C, the 31, the outer surface protein A, the 34, the outer surface protein B, the 39, the 8393, they're specific for Borrelia. Now, if you knew that there were 100 strains of Borrelia and you saw any of those bands, you might not say it has to be Lyme disease. You could certainly say it's borreliosis. Right, right. Um, and I think doctors need to expand their mind that what we're seeing close is... Close enough, right? It's close enough. Yeah. It's Borrelia burgdorferi, but it's other strains of Borrelia. Yeah. If you have a band on a Western blot that's suggestive, it means exposure to Borrelia. You might not, it might not be Borrelia burgdorferi. It might be, depending on it. But also you have to look at the co-infections. You know, doctors, if they would simply start screening broadly for co-infections like Ehrlichia, Anaplasma, Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, Babesia, Bartonella, um, people would not be getting sick. We, we just recently had a gentleman die in our area in Poughkeepsie, New York, from Lyme carditis. This was a 17-year-old um, black man who was down at Brown University studying environmental um, medicine and came back. He lived in Dutchess County hiking, started getting sick with flu-like symptoms in the summer, his ELISA was negative, and he died several weeks later from disseminated Lyme with Lyme carditis. Yeah. And the doctors were following, who, who treated him, were following IDSA guidelines. Yeah. Because the ELISA was negative, they never bothered to do a blot. You know, they never bothered to check for other tick-borne co-infections where, let's say, his Ehrlichia was positive. They might have given him doxy. So 
This kind of training of physicians, it needs to be done across the United States and worldwide because it is the number one worldwide uh, spreading epidemic in the U.S. and Europe, and it's about to, to be so worldwide. Doctors have to understand that these ticks are containing all of these different infections. And with all of these different strains, if the science hasn't caught up, you know, your first role is to your patient, right? Yeah. So you've got to be able to figure out if you sent them to neurologists and psychologists and cardiologists to explain their chest pain and their neurologic, and no one can come up with an answer. You should always be defaulting to tick-borne diseases, um, and it really just requires, as I said, using the questionnaire, looking for Lyme-specific bands. I've always been able to make a diagnosis, even if the blood tests are not perfect, because Lyme is a clinical diagnosis. But yes. we've got to get past the politics and, and realize that what's best for this country is really putting the patient first, looking at the science, not just blindly following guidelines like from the IDSA that just don't work in clinical practice except for early Lyme. Um, we, we've just got to put the patients first and realize that this is a serious epidemic. People's lives are at stake. People can die from adopting and using the IDSA guidelines. And we just need to take a much stronger stance where we can all sit down and look at the science and just get past this. And that was our interview with Dr. Richard Horowitz talking about his multi-system process of treating Lyme disease. Hope you enjoyed it. Again, we will be back to our normal podcasting schedule next week. If you like what we're doing here, leave a review on iTunes. If you really like what we're doing, head on over to patreon.com and donate to Lime Ninja Radio. If you donate at the $10 level, we will send you a copy of our top 10 transcripts. Uh, yes, the Lime Ninja Top 10 transcripts are the concentrated wisdom of three years of podcast episodes featuring experts like the one you just heard, Dr. Richard Horowitz, as well as the real food rebel Brenda Constantino and the genetic nutrition expert Bob Miller. Also, if you don't know your Lyme score yet, do yourself a favor and head on over to LimeNinjaRadio.com front slash tracker and fill out the Lime Ninja symptom tracker. In case you haven't heard yet, it's free. I also want to remind everybody out there that the Mid-Coast Maine Lyme Conference is coming up April 28th in Augusta, Maine. Um, McKay is going to be emceeing that conference right there. And I've just been getting little tidbits as this conference continues to be organized. They've got a really great lineup coming up. I'm really looking forward to heading out there uh, at the end of April and, and seeing this conference in action. Again, that's April 28th at the Augusta Civic Center. So go, you can go ahead and Google Mid Coast Maine Lyme Conference 2018. That being said, that wraps up our episode. But as you longtime Lyme ninjas know, this podcast would not be complete. Unless we left you with the Lime Ninja Fact of the Day. I feel like I should be putting like horror music in there or something like that. Anyway, did you know a ninja never dials the wrong number? You simply pick up the wrong phone.
Lime Ninja Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized medical advice for any individual's specific situation. Each individual's medical situation is unique, and Lime Ninja Radio should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized medical advice. Lime Ninja Radio is not licensed to render medical advice and should be considered simply the public opinion of Lime Ninja Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific treatment options are not intended to address any listener's particular medical situation. As always, contact your physician before considering any new treatment.